Your word is powerful. Your word is true. And we ask you to teach us from your word so that we might understand more fully the things that we have believed and learn more concretely how to apply these things into action. And we ask this in Jesus' powerful and mighty name. Amen. Well, today I'd like to talk to you about your belief, your faith. It's easy for us to take it for granted, especially those of us who maybe have been Christians for a while. A newborn believer has uh, what theologians and pastors call new believers' fire. And I had a very wise pastor once tell me there's no such thing as new believers' fire, but there is such a thing as old believers' compromise and apathy. That fire that we see in someone who has just heard the gospel and has just come to Christ is something that should be with us throughout our days. I mean, oxygen is oxygen. You need it when you're born and you need it until the day you die. It is really an essential component of life on earth. And that fire of the Holy Spirit, that excitement, that understanding, that belief is an honor. It's an honor to be called Christian. It's an honor to be numbered amongst the people of God. It's a great privilege. None of us, but none of us, have earned it. Nothing you can inherit from your physical family, although God uses physical families to propagate the gospel. It is a gift from on high. It is a gift of the living God. And gifts are something that we should cherish. If you give a great gift to someone, a costly gift, and they then abuse it, don't like it, Return it behind your back. What are your feelings? You'll be offended. You'll feel dishonored. You'll feel disrespected and right. Well, you should be. Well, God has given you the gift of faith. He has given you the gift of belief. And that is something to be honored. It is something to be cherished. It is something to be nurtured. It is something to be built up in knowledge and devotion to the Lord our God. We do not earn our salvation. All the devotional acts that we could ever conjure, anything that we could possibly do as a spiritual practice, they will not add up to a hill of beans unless faith precedes them first. You see, the good deeds that we do as Christians, they are responses to God's grace. Do you really think, and hopefully none of you do, Do you really think that you could clean yourself up enough and do enough lawful deeds in God's sight to actually earn his two thumbs up? Or do you think that you're, generally speaking, going to have to confess your sins? If you have to confess your sins, then you're not doing it perfectly. If you're not doing it perfectly, then God cannot, by his own nature, give you his two thumbs up. We have a problem Thankfully, the Lord our God has provided us with a solution. The blood of the new and everlasting covenant. Christ indeed did it perfectly. And his blood has been applied to our accounts. That's how we get into heaven. That's how we avoid the pit. When we think of that reading in Job, that word, that phrase, you know, ransom my soul from the pit, it's not a very pleasant thing to think about, is it? We don't like to talk about that, but it's a reality. 
every single human being who was ever conceived or born will either spend eternity in heaven with the Lord and God's people or in hell away from the comfortable presence of God. I tremble every time I say that. But I would be remiss, I would be recreant in my duties as a pastor if I didn't point it out. It's a horrible thing to contemplate. It's a terrifying thing. But it's a reality we do need to contemplate and think about. And when we realize that we have believed that the gospel is true, that it's ringing in our hearts, and that that indeed is a gift, that the faith itself is a gift, that God has ransomed us from the pit, well then what should our response be? Literally, we should be bopping out of our seats, just thoroughly excited, but we don't think about it that often. Peter's verses here are a stark reminder of the reality that God is a picky God, that he chooses the fish that he catches. Now, the kingdom of God will always have the wheat and the tares. There will always be evil mixed in with the good. That's a, that's a prophetic fact. And the goal of the church is to do its best to preach the gospel in such a way that those who do not like the gospel, those who do not enjoy the gospel, won't return to hear the gospel. If you keep preaching light, darkness runs away because darkness hates light. They're antithetical to each other. What does Peter tell us? Well, a few weeks ago we looked at um, the early part of this section, verses 4 and 5. But the way Peter writes, he writes in such a way that it's difficult to say, okay, I'm going to preach on that part and, and, and kind of leave that part in the past because his thought, he combines things and he rolls them together. So it's difficult to say, okay, I already preached on that, I don't need to review it because as he continues to write, he's building upon his previous points. So what he tells us is that we come to Christ as living stones. And remember, I pointed out to you two, maybe three weeks ago, that living stones is rather a contradictory type of statement. Stones don't live. They're not alive. They're inanimate. They are stones. But Christ is the living stones. We come to him. Christ is a living stone. And notice in verse 4, he's chosen and precious by God. He's chosen and precious by God. And we as living stones are being built up, that's passive, being built up, that shows God is in charge of our salvation, that we are not in charge of it. It's being built up into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices, not physical sacrifices, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, these are great honors there's a couple of things here that will help us move into the next section. Jesus has been rejected by men, but he has been chosen by God and precious. Fact number one. He has been rejected by men. The book of Isaiah tells us that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
I enjoy telling people there's a reason why we do not see Jesus not one single solitary time laughing in the Gospels. People say, well, certainly he must have laughed. He was human. Sure, he must have laughed. But can you imagine being able to see and feel the evil around him in a a palpable way? I mean, when you look out at the world and you see some horrific, unjust type of thing happening. Think about 9-11 just for a minute. What, What flashed through your mind when you realized, oh, this isn't an accident? Horror. Outrage, righteous anger. Imagine being able to see that all day, every day, everywhere you looked. How could he possibly be walking around laughing when he was able to read people's minds, when he's able to read people's hearts, when he's able to see past their false smiles and see the disgusting evil in them? The reality is, is that Jesus suffered on the cross, but brothers and sisters, he suffered while he was walking around Palestine. Because he saw so much despair and hopelessness. He saw the people as sheep without a shepherd. Lonely, hungry, desperate. He saw it all. Even if they didn't see it, he was able to see it all. And when he tried to show them the way, they rejected him. But God chose him. The Father, this is called what's called the covenant of redemption. There is an agreement, a covenant between the Father and the Son from all eternity. And the way it works is this. The Father says, I will give you a people, your own chosen people. The catch is is that you have to redeem their lives from the pit. And here's the plan. Now, obviously I'm traveling back into the eternal counsels of God. That's a slippery place to get to. But that's basically how it's explained. Christ was chosen by the Father to fulfill a particular commission. Christ came here and did exactly what he was supposed to do. The blood has been applied to everybody to whom it is to be applied. And it has been not applied to everyone that is not to be applied. Now, regarding Christ, in verses 6 and 7 and 8, he starts going into his Christology. Therefore... It is also contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone. And again, he's elect and precious. And he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. This is a quote from the book of Isaiah. And I'd like to just focus on this for a moment. One of the reasons why ancient Israel was cast into exile, one of the prime reasons was their idolatry. Yahweh wasn't enough for them. His religion wasn't fun enough for them. He was kind of a somber God. Even though they were commanded to feast, they were commanded at certain times of the year to use part of their tithe to go and buy wine and to buy lambs and bulls and have a big party. It was commanded. He's not completely somber, not completely dressed in Bible black, but the... The Canaanite fertility religions, they were, they were fun all the time. All the time. And they were very attractive to a lot of people. And they swam into those filthy waters so much that they actually brought those pagan artifacts and objects of worship into the actual temple of the living God. There's one thing. There's one thing for people who 
uh, are not educated in the word to slip and fall into idolatry. That's an awful thing. But for the high priest, for the Levites who knew better to bring that garbage into the temple of the living God, that, that's a whole different bowl of soup. They were cast out because of their idolatry, their immorality, and their polytheism. Now again, go look at this passage carefully, this verse. It's from Isaiah. What does it say? I'm going to read it slowly. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect precious, and he who believes on him will by no means put to shame. Okay. Personal pronouns. Remember those? Who's the I speaking here? Clearly it's the Father. It's God. I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone. And he, that's a third party, who believes on him shall by no means put to shame. It doesn't say who believes in me believes on him. Ooh, okay. We, have a, we either have a subtle problem here or a glorious truth. And we're going to go with door number two, a glorious truth. Because God is by no means condoning polytheism here. Nowhere in the Old Testament are the people of God allowed to worship anyone but Yahweh. That's pretty clear. It's very clear. It's all over the place. But here, there's a third party. There's three parties here. We have the I, who is the Father, those who believe, which are believers, and the Him, who is clearly not the Father. There's a second party to whom we must believe on. What we have here is a text that clearly proves the eternal divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. When people say, well, the Trinity is not taught in the Old Testament, no, you better just pay attention to your personal pronouns, at least with this verse, very carefully. Very carefully, because there's a third guy here. Him. That chief cornerstone. We have to believe on the chief cornerstone. The Father is not the chief cornerstone, people. It's not. The Father is the eye who is laying the chief cornerstone. It's beautiful truth. That's one of the reasons why when Jesus is casting out demons and the Pharisees come to him and they say to the people, forget about him. He's got Beelzebub, the Lord of the Flies. And it's by Beelzebub that he's casting out demons. And then Jesus just shreds their argument with beautiful, beautiful logic. And then he talks about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit being the unpardonable sin. It's very noteworthy that the Pharisees don't jump all over him and say, "Um, Holy Spirit, why didn't you say Yahweh? Who is this Holy Spirit? How can you blaspheme the Holy Spirit? You can only blaspheme Yahweh. They don't ever charge him with blasphemy. They don't ever charge him with heresy. They don't charge him with crime. They don't seek to stone him. And remember, almost from day one when he started preaching, they are looking for a reason to bring him before the Sanhedrin and kill him. They wanted him dead from the start of his ministry. They understood the plurality of persons within the Godhead. And they just refused to believe. The Pharisees were learned. They spent a lot of time studying the Old Covenant. They understood and they rejected the chief cornerstone. They rejected him, but he was chosen and precious 
by God. And those of us who believe, we have a promise here of God that we will not be put to shame. And what this is talking about being put to shame, it's not talking about here and now. Because Jesus was shamed in the here and now. Peter, the man who wrote this, church tradition has always told us, whether it's Catholic, Greek Orthodox, or Protestant, everybody says that's what people have been saying, that he was crucified upside down. He wasn't a Roman citizen. Paul got his head chopped off. That was his Roman right. Peter said, I don't deserve to be crucified right side up. You, 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 you do me upside down. What this is talking about is the day of judgment, the day of the Lord, that on that great and final day, we will not be put to shame because we have trusted in him who has taken away our shame. But those who reject him on that great and final day, no matter their pomp and glory in this world, if they have not trusted in Christ on that great and final day, they indeed will be put to shame. They will be embarrassed. They will be terrified. And that should terrify us. It should make us glad that he has opened up our eyes and enlightened the eyes of our hearts. But it should make us tremble to realize that we are not dealing with a God to be trifled with. He is a serious God. He is not the God of modern day religion. He is not. He's not. He's a God of justice and mercy. He is a God of compassion and a God of judgment. You can't have one without the other. By definition, if he's a God of compassion, then that means there's reason for judgment. Compassion can't exist if something hasn't gone wrong. Mercy can't exist if judgment is not passed over. And Christ, as our Passover lamb, has taken all of that upon us. Now in verse 7, Therefore to you who believe, that's us, he is precious. Oh, we're imitating the Father here. Christ is the cornerstone. He is chosen and precious to the Father. We who believe, he is precious to us. I'm going to ask you very clearly, is Jesus precious to you? I mean, precious. That's a very serious word. We think of it in terms of diamonds, compressed carbon, smashed down, a shiny, glittering rock. It's a precious stone. (laughs) It's a stone. Is Jesus precious to you? Is there anything more valuable to you than him. It's easy to put many things in front of him. Ourselves, our families, the church, career, money, anything can go in front of him. And we all slip into it. It's very hard for parents. It's hard. Want you pour in Decades to your children. Now, it's very easy to get your eyes off of the reason why you're doing it. You're doing it because God has given you the blessing of them. To steward their souls. To bring them up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. So, when they go out into the world, And the world begins to tell them lies that they don't walk away from it and end up ashamed. That's why we pour our hearts and souls into that. Jesus must be first. He must be first because he is the 
conduit, as it were, between us and the Father. Without Him, we're not saved. There's no other name under heaven and earth by which we can be saved except by the name of Jesus Christ. Is He precious to you? The way this verse is phrased is it's, it's, it's stating a fact. He is precious to you whether you think about it or not. And I'm continually telling you a vast majority of the issues we have in our Christian lives, our Christian sanctification, is that we're just not thinking at any particular time about what is real, about what is true. That's why Paul is constantly telling people, in the book of Philippians, notably, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is noteworthy, whatever is of good repute, think on these things because it's easy to think about things that are of no eternal use. You mow your lawn, right? Well, some of you do. Tractor. What do you think about while you're doing it? Well, hopefully you're paying attention to what you're doing so, so nobody gets hurt. Okay? That's first and foremost. But so many of the mundane tasks that we do, we're not really, you know, we kind of go on automatic pilot. You know, take something that's not really um, kind, of, kind of hard to injure yourself pouring a bowl of cereal. I suppose it could be done if you're really creative. But think of all the mundane tasks that we do. That's a chance for us to just pause and think. Oh, I'm in the presence of God. He's given this to me. Most of us say what, you know, what I was taught as a Catholic schoolboy, to say grace before dinner. Right? And sometimes you say it real quick. Thank you, Lord. You know, boom. Maybe that's a good time to just pause and reflect. Okay, I have, I have a, a physical gift here. You know, we're going to have a feast after, after, after worship. It's a feast. It's a gift. It's a little foretaste of heaven, the fellowship of the saints, the communion of the saints. Just by thinking a little bit each day about what is real about God, our lives can, I assure you, be dramatically improved. Think about who he is and who he is, what he has done for you, and he will become more present in your thoughts and you will reflect on how precious he truly is. But to those builders, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And they stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. Please notice in verse 7 is quote from the Psalter. The stone which the builders rejected, what are they building? In verse 6, God has laid a cornerstone in Zion. And Zion is, is code for the covenantal people of God. Applies to old covenant people, new covenant people. It's, it's Zion, it's the heavenly Jerusalem, as the Apostle John terms it, as Paul terms it in the book of Galatians. It's us, it's the people of God. He's laying that stone. But there's, there's another... There's another set of builders in verse 7. The stone, the cornerstone in verse 6, which the builders reject. Now, who are these builders? The builders are unbelievers. What exactly are they building? Tower of Babel. That's what they're building. They're building false systems. False systems built on false truths. Yeah, I said that on purpose. False truths. They look like their truth. They smell like their truth. 
Because as I pointed out in Sunday school, Satan does not feed us poison directly. He buries it in sugar and syrup and whatever, whatever is your favorite condiment. That's the flavor of the deception and the, and the taste. He will, a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down. Well, a pound of sugar makes the poison almost, you can't taste it. It's hidden. There's another group of builders, my friends. And they are building upon a different foundation. They are building the kingdom of the evil one. Well, we shouldn't worry about them too much. We should take them seriously. But go home and read Psalm 2 today. God's in the heavens laughing at them. I mean, you men, have you ever had a, ever had like a two-year-old boy run up to you and kind of jostle with you like he's, like he's Sugar Ray Robinson going to box with you? It's cute, right? You know, he can't really hurt you. What's he going to do, punch your knee? You know, he's going to punch your knee with all of the... the 35 or 40 pounds he's got behind him. It's like you, you fool around with him. You're not, you're, not, you're not pressed about it. Now, if a grown man 6'5", 250 comes up to you, he's going to get your attention a lot more quickly because you realize, okay, he's not two. He can definitely do some damage. When God looks at the false systems that these builders are building, he's not pressed. God is the architect of the universe. He spoke the universe into existence by the word of his power. He's not all that nervous or concerned or agitated even by the kingdoms that these builders are building. He's amused by their ridiculous efforts. We shouldn't be amused by it. We have to fight it. But we shouldn't be all that worried about it because their end is clear. They stumble because they're disobedient and... Wonder of wonders, they're actually appointed to it. Now that last clause in verse 8 is chilling. But it is a clear vindication of Presbyterian theology. It is a clear vindication of what we call Calvinism. It's a horrifying thing to realize that those who are disobedient have been chosen for that role as well. We have been chosen for glory. They have been chosen, appointed for dishonor. That is terrifying. To realize that that is how sovereign God is. And what I want you to contemplate, I don't want you to walk out of here terrified. I want you to go out of here metaphorically on your knees, reeling. he had mercy on me. He allowed me to be born into a Christian family. <clears throat> I heard the gospel when I was three. I've heard it all day, every week in church for 40 or 50 years. That's, a lot of people don't get that. It's a great honor to be numbered amongst the believers of God. Because God from all eternity chose you. God's in charge of everything. We're chosen people. I'll get to that next week. Does that make him precious to you? It should. It should make you humble as well to realize that he chose you not because of who you are, but because of this chief cornerstone. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved 
through faith, not of works, lest any should boast. It's obscured in the English, but the gift in that verse isn't the salvation. The gift is the faith. There's no way to make it look different in English. The gift is the faith. If you believe, it's a precious gift. It's been given to you by God. It's an honor. Hold it and cherish it for what it truly is. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord our God, we thank you that you have spoken to us and opened up our eyes and allowed us the great privilege and honor of believing and thereby being called your adopted children. By your grace, help us to stand firm in the faith that you have given us. Amen.